Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, fans of Shuklistan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you? I can walk around like a normal person. Hey! And maybe I could go try the beam again. <laughs> are you ready to balance on that foot? I am ready to balance on that foot, and I love the beam, and I love the floor. Those were, in my very childish mind, always my favorites. Mm -hmm. So I am so excited about today. <laughs> yes, we are talking gymnastics, which is very exciting. How far did you get in your gymnastics career? Oh, not very far. I was like a just a club-level gymnastics, and the, the levels were different back in the day. How so? That each Olympic cycle there were more levels because they would reshuffle them. So I think when I was there, it was, I mean, I, I stopped competing when I was 13. Okay. So, I mean, this was a really, really long time ago, but I want to say there was maybe five levels at the time. Oh, wow. Okay. And now there's 10 and it was the reverse. So like one the was the, the top level. One was the top. And of course, someone's going to correct me and, and tell me I'm wrong. So this was back in the early 80s. That's how far back we're going. So because I seem to remember like making level three optionals. Oh, okay. Like that's what I remember being where I stopped, which is pretty low, but I did get to make up a routine. Oh, that's cool. Was it exciting? No, I was definitely one of those girls. And of the time, the coach just gave it to me. Oh, I couldn't even tell you what the music was. I'd never heard the music before. And I just only competed it once, and that was the end of my career. Well, too bad you didn't have Nicole Langevin in your corner. <laughs> I know. So today we are talking with Nicole Langevin. She is a gymnastics judge, choreographer, and co-owner with Shook Vlastani Chelsea Memorial of My Gym Judge, LLC. She's written for gymnastics publications such as International Gymnast, Inside Gymnastics, and Technique. And she lectures at national and international congresses on gymnastics judging. Nicole runs clinics and workshops aimed at raising the level of artistry in gymnastics. She is also the founder of Precision Choreography and has created programs for Olympians Alicia Sacramoni, Chelsea Memel, and Shukvastani Horigabashin. We spoke with Nicole about what it takes to, to put together a gymnastics floor routine. Take a listen. Hi, Nicole, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I want to start at the very beginning of how do you start working with a gymnast who calls you? How does that work? So I'm assuming you're talking about for choreography. For choreography, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So for people who are not familiar with the gymnastics world besides every four years at the Olympics, gymnasts across all levels starting in level six going up and in another program called Excel, we could go into all the different programs. But basically about halfway through their gymnastics career, they will have the opportunity to have their own choreography. A lot of them have to do a standardized routine that goes, you know, everybody in the entire country follows. And then it's like a rite of passage when they get out of those levels and get to have their own routine. So I do get a lot of excited kids that are getting their first routine ever, and they finally get to have their own personality show. And I don't take that lightly. I remember that feeling. I remember the excitement of getting my sixth floor routine. It never goes away. Getting a new routine is just one of the, the coolest days in a gymnast's life. And they typically get new ones about every two years. So when athletes are approaching me, they could this could be their very first one, or they could be getting ready for the Olympic stage. It's, it runs the gambit. And what I want to always, always remember is number one, how exciting and important it is to them. And number two, I'm a judge also. And I know that they have a minute to a minute and a half to show who they are. 
to show why they shine so brightly. And so we want to make sure, and when I say we, I, I have other choreographers that I work with under my company, Precision Choreography, and we make sure that we do our research before we ever meet the athlete in the gym or virtually. And so we've got a questionnaire that we have them fill out. And what's really great about that is it sends the message to them right away that they are a part of the process and that it's not just a bunch of adults getting together and saying, here, this is what you're doing. If anybody's ever seen American Anthem, you'll get that reference. And, and then we also, we look at their old videos. From a judging standpoint, I can watch a video and I can know, okay, this is what we want to showcase and this is what we want to hide in order to maximize scoring potential. So getting them on board and feeling like it is their routine via the questionnaire and the questions that we ask and also researching their their past performances and figuring out which direction we need to go. What are we highlighting and, and what are we maybe hiding if we need to? Are there countries that do prescribe routines for their gymnasts? I can't speak to that because okay. I don't live there or work there. But I I would think that it is it is going on. I mean, there are and it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? This is just this is my perspective and this is what what I believe the way that it should be. And I think that the athletes should have complete say in what they're doing with the guidance of the professionals around them who know, you know, what's going to score best. So, you know, we're not going to let them go out there and do something that we know is not going to work. Right. So there is a, there is a balance in there. I know when I was a gymnast, I was allowed to choose my music. It had to be approved by the coach, but I was allowed to choose it. But I also know other athletes who their coaches said, this is your music and you're doing so-and-so's routine from two years ago. She's going to come teach it to you. Boom, you're done. So it just depends on, on the coach really. Okay, so how do you and the athlete and the coach choose music? A lot of times they will come to us with their music already selected, but oftentimes or sometimes they will come and they will choose music from our music library. And sometimes, like just recently, I received a music choice from an athlete and then I looked at her video and I just thought to myself, this is not going to do her justice. And that's different than me not liking the music. Because if I don't like the music, that doesn't matter. I still need to do my job. I listened to this song and I just felt like this is a song that a lot of people use when they're not really great dancers. And it kind of, they think it's going to distract from that. There's a preconceived notion with this particular song. And in looking at the video of the athlete, I just thought, she's got way more to give than than what this song offers. So I called the parent and I respectfully just shared my opinion and they were very grateful. And then we worked together to find a song. Basically, I, I went and sh- sent them about four that I thought were really good for her. And ultimately, the athlete picked one out of those. And that's what we're going to be doing next week. So why so much Eastern European folk music? <laughs> you know, I I think there has always been a little bit of pandering to the host country. And so look at Dominic Mochiano's routine, Devil Went Down to Georgia. I mean, that was at the Atlanta Olympics. Come on. So, and it worked, you know. There have definitely been athletes from other countries. There was a Romanian athlete, I believe, that did a, it was like a medley of American folk music. It was like... Because the competition, I think it was possibly world championships or something, was happening in the U.S. And the commentators even made a joke about it. So I think that happens a lot. I also think that people go with what they're comfortable with. So if that style of music is working for an athlete or a group of athletes, the coach might tend to continue to use that type of music. So what kind of music, say, works with a girl who is a very good dancer? Well, good dancer can mean that they're very graceful and balletic. It can also mean that they're great at hip hop. So that's a very broad term. And that's something, that's a misconception that we get a lot where coaches, parents, gymnasts ask a lot of times, what what kind of routines do judges like? And I say, we like great routines. It doesn't matter what style. So as long as the style of music is suited to the style that the athlete excels in, that's what's going to work. And I often joke that in judging, you know, we're kind of like food critics, right? A food critic goes to a restaurant, they try a bunch of food, and then they have to give a review. Well, we are watching a bunch of routines, and then we give our review. And if a food critic is not really into seafood, they still have to be able to recognize a great salmon dish, and they still have to give it the credit that it deserves. So we can watch routines, and maybe we don't like the style, quote unquote, it's not our job to impart our opinion. If they're a great dancer in whatever style they choose, then that's ultimately what's going to score the best. There's the tumbling as well, which is separate. But I would say back to your question, what type of music for a good dancer? It's got to be the style 
that they are a good dancer in. Do you think that does hold true, though, at the most elite levels? Or do you think, you know, international judges do tend to to like the old school? Or is that changing? I am not an international judge, and I, I do know some, but I don't know that I can answer to that. But what I can tell you is there is a huge movement in gymnastics right now of trying to codify artistry, trying to actually make it a black and white thing because of that very question and that conception. I don't even want to call it a misconception because it could be true, but it also could be a misconception. So there's a big push right now. There's a lot of judges education that's going on worldwide to help judges identify artistry. A bunch of years back, Cirque du Soleil was involved as I believe as consultants kind of helping to explain what is art, what should you be looking for? Not what particular style, but what components should you be looking for? And now for the first time, there's actually a checklist that the judges use at the elite level to rate artistry. And it has things to do with their footwork, their posture and carriage. Again, that that's only at the elite level. So at the, I, don't, I guess, call it amateur levels, for lack of a better term, there's not that checklist. We're still in that world of subjectively deciding whether something is quote unquote artistic or not. Okay. So when putting together a floor routine, we've got gymnastic passes, the acrobatic mm-hmm. passes, and then the rest of the routine. So if, can you just break down a little bit about what makes up yep. a, a floor routine? Yeah. So every floor routine is going to have a series of what are called special requirements. So special requirements simply mean you have to do these four things in order for your routine to start from a 10. And it's different for every level. So those special requirements are a combination of requirements of tumbling and dance elements. And dance elements means leaps, jumps, and turns. They do all those four things successfully. Their routine will start from a 10. Now, within that, they also have to have difficulty value. They have to have four skills that are rated an A, four skills that are rated a B. They have all of those things. They start from a 10. If they're missing one of those, so let's say that they do a tumbling pass and they do out of all their saltos, they only have two different ones. They don't have a third different salto. Their start value, the highest that they can get, will drop down to a 9.5. Then we have in our higher levels, level nine and 10. So for level nine, their special requirements, meaning they meet everything that they're supposed to do, puts them at a 9.7 start value. And then they have to combine things to get bonus to start from a 10. Level 10, if they hit all of their special requirements, they hit a 9.5 start value and then they have to earn five tenths of bonus. So all of those things come from actual skills. They come from, again, tumbling, leaps, jumps, and turns. So we know when we're choreographing a routine what level they are. We find out, are you doing two tumbling passes or three? Because you can work the system a little bit. And again, everybody's different in how they fulfill their requirements. We find out what type of leap passage they're doing, what type of turn they're doing. And then we listen to our music and we essentially create a map with the timing of the music. And there's no black and white to it. So, you know, when I do it, I go through and the first thing I do is I place the tumbling passes where I want them. And I have to know as an athlete, okay, I need, I can't do a tumbling pass and then four seconds later do another one because I, first of all, I need to breathe. And then second of all, as a choreographer, I have to go, all right, I got to get her to the other side of the floor. So she's tumbling out of a different diagonal. So I know I need a minimum of eight seconds and I can go all the way up to 20 seconds of not tumbling. Right. So I place my tumbling passes where I want them first. Then I go back and I figure out where do I want the leap? Where do I want the turn? Are there any other jumps? I place those and then I'm left with sections that need to be choreographed from there. Okay. So at the Olympic level, we're seeing three tumbling passes. Well, a lot of times you're seeing four, four, but yeah, three or four, depending on the athlete. And then they have to go from different corners. Mm-hmm. And then what kind of other special requirements are in that level? So again, I'm not an elite judge, so I don't even want to try to, I'm going to be relatively vague with you, but they do have to have, they're different. Okay. So elite gymnastics does not start from a 10 anymore. I don't know if you guys have noticed that these weird 13 point whatevers. And so what they're doing is they're being evaluated by two different panels of judges. There's an E panel and there's a D panel. The E panel is judging from a 10 
and E stands for execution. So all they're doing, that E panel, is watching and taking deductions for how well or not well things are being done. So they're looking at amplitude of skills. They're looking at execution, which means straight legs, pointed toes, things like that. Body position. If they're straight, are they perfectly straight? If they're piked, are they piked enough? And then they're looking at landing. So they're deducting from a 10. The other table of judges, the D panel, stands for difficulty. That judging panel, all they're doing is deciding, identifying the skill that the athlete is doing and building up from zero and giving them a difficulty score. So the elite athletes don't necessarily have the same special requirements to start from a 10. They start from a zero and they put in the elements to build that D score as high as they possibly can. And that is done through doing difficult skills. You know, some gymnasts will get it in tumbling. You know, Simone was definitely one of those. She still got some dance elements that were really high level rated, but she was a tumbler and she used that to her advantage. And that's why she did the passes that she did. Then we have some other gymnasts that are coming out from the Netherlands and they're doing two tumbling passes. And then they're doing all these leaps and turns because that's where they excel and they're working the code. They figure out what they can do and they maximize in that area. So so there's some freedom there. And they're, you know, what's hard is they're trying to get that D score so high that they're doing so much stuff and there's not a lot of room for choreography. It's really, really tricky to get them to travel across the floor, to get them to cover as much of the floor as possible while doing all of this other stuff. It's it's very tricky. And then they have to breathe. <laughs> So speaking of breathing, perfect for me. One of the things that I always laugh at is the pause in the corner with the various arm action to make it look like they're actually doing something. But what they're really doing is prepping for their tumbling pass. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the corner, the corner rules are they're the bane of many choreographers existence and athletes as well. The powers that be that decide what the code of points is going to be. They upgrade this every quad. They change the rules. And basically, my understanding of it, if you ask me, even though I'm not on this board, they look at what everybody's doing. And once they think it's people have mastered it, they go, oh, it's too easy. We got to make it harder. And then they do. And then everybody rises to that level because they're amazing. And then they go, oh, you guys can do that. All right, we got to make it harder. So when this big push of artistry started happening around 2012 is when it really was becoming more of a priority. One of the things that they decided was that standing in the corner and preparing takes away from artistry and that there should be a seamless transition between dance and acrobatics. And so now they're telling them all these weird rules like you can't, you can't be on two feet, but if you're a junior, you can be on two feet, but only in one pass before you tumble. You can't come at the diagonal in a straight line and then tumble back. You have to curve yourself in and, and be on one foot. And I mean, it's just crazy. I don't think it makes it more artistic. I think it just makes it annoying to choreograph and <laughs> hard for them to do. I honestly think the next thing they're going to say is, oh, you guys could do that. Now I need you to close your eyes, hold your breath and tumble. Because I don't know where else they can go from here. There's this one move that struck me last year in Tokyo in Jade Carey's floor routine where she does this one-footed half turn into her tumbling pass. But now that makes sense because it was, oh, she pauses before she turns and sort of starts into the pass. But then she goes. (laughs) But that makes perfect sense. She is delaying that corner Mm -hmm. moment, that corner pause. Yeah. You know, it's no matter what, these gymnasts, especially at the elite level, are so incredible that they can do whatever is asked of them. They really can. They will figure it out because they're champions, right? They're incredible. But, you know, the question is, is it really that necessary? I mean, safety wise, too. If you have to stop and think, then you need to stop and think for your own safety. Are there fads or is it just because of the code of points? Yes and yes. So, so there was a long time ago when I used to compete, it was very, very rare to see front tumbling, forward tumbling. Everything was round of back handspring something. Even you look at the 92 Olympics, everybody did. They all did. Round of back handspring, whip back, back handspring, full twisting, double back. Round of back handspring, double pike. Round of back handspring, double tuck. It was like it, it became compulsory. They were all doing the same thing with little variations here and there, of course. 
because that's what the code of points valued. It didn't value front tumbling. So why are you going to go learn it? And for coaches, we have to start this stuff at the very beginning. You don't just one day go, oh, I'm going to learn a front layout. I mean, that that started from, from the beginning of, of laying the foundation of gymnastics. And so a lot of us, me included, didn't really train front tumbling that much. And then in, I think it was 93, all of a sudden, oh, a, a front full is a D and a front layout's a C, which in layman's terms, those front flipping skills, especially with a twist, were rated really high. And then we all had to figure out how to do them. And so that trend occurred, though, and coaches started developing younger athletes to understand how to do that. And now front tumbling is, is a lot more prevalent. The code really dictates what we're teaching the athletes because of what it's rated. You know, we have the god-awful wolf turn that I heard one of you is a huge fan of. And, <laughs> and Neither of us. But you know what? It's it's a, It's got a high difficulty rating. And so... You're going to work the code. You're going to do it. And until it's not rated as high anymore, we're going to see them all the time. So the wolf turn, I'll let you explain what that is because I'm sure <laughs> I would I would use ridiculous language. So go ahead. and. Well, I'll, I will do it in layman's terms. If you think of, you know, if you're standing on the ground, put your feet together and then squat down so your butt is on your heels, essentially. So you're squatting down and then extend one leg straight out to the side. That is the, t the beginning of a wolf turn. And then you whip that straight leg in front of you and you spin around in a single leg squat. And two, three, three and a half times, I think the most I've seen, well, in competition, I think the most I've seen is a three and a half, but people have done way more on, they, they post them on Instagram and things like that. Right. And you'll see it both on the beam and on the floor. Why does this annoy so many people? Because we, uh, thankfully, we are not alone in our despise of the wolf turn. <laughs> it has been done well. There are a handful of athletes, and I wish I came here prepared with names, but I have to say there there are some that actually make it look nice. And when they do, it's like, oh, okay, that's what it's supposed to look like. But the reason I don't like it is because most of the time after they get about one and a half times around, the arms start flailing and there's no other skill you would ever put in a routine because these, these coaches and these athletes are very smart. They put in the skills that they can do close to perfect or perfect. Yet for some reason, these wolf turns, because of how they're judged and rated, still get in there with the arms circling and the whoa as they're going around. And it's just, it's just an eyesore. And I don't know, it's a weird position, don't you think? Like squatted down, yeah. I don't know. It's weird. What kind of things do you wish were rated and earned more points that you miss or uh, that you just don't get to see as much? There's things on beam, there's rules on beam right now that kind of prevent a lot of creativity and difficulty. Back in the early and mid 90s, we started seeing a lot of people on balance beam going back handspring to three layout step outs in a row. And it's just, it's so cool. It takes the whole length of the beam. It's four acrobatic skills, three with no hands in a row. I'm just really like circus style, you know, where you, you, you could appreciate that even if you know nothing about gymnastics. And now, you know, the rule is you can't do three of the same element in a routine at all. So you're not even allowed to do that anymore. So I just think there should be some exceptions for things. I understand why that rule is in place because they should be showing a variety of elements. But at a certain point, it's like, if somebody can do that, that is so cool. There's also people who have got, been able to go round off onto the springboard, lay out onto the beam, followed by two more layouts, and they can't use it. So I think that the code of points should, I, I know you can't, it's like laws, right? Like you can't make a law that everybody's going to be happy with. You can't make a rule in the code of points that is going to suit every single situation. And you also can't say, oh, well, we'll decide when the, when it comes up, if we're going to give that or not. So I, you know, I don't know if I have the solution. I just wish that things like that were still able to be done. Is there anything that you are wishing would go away besides the wolf turn? <laughs> wishing would go away. Or what are you bored with seeing so much of? There are things at the elite level where it seems a little redundant, some of the tumbling passes. And again, this isn't a dig at the athletes because they're they're smart to do it. But seeing somebody do a full twisting 
double pike and then a full twisting double tuck and then a double pike and then a double tuck. Like it just kind of becomes like you're just doing four versions of essentially the same root skill. So things like that. It, it would be nice, I think, if if floor required a little bit more variety in the tumbling. But again, I, I'm not the one that has to do it. So <laughs> it's kind of crappy for me to say that. But, you know, as a, as a spectator. Other than that, yeah, there's a leg up hop full turn. So basically, like if you were standing and you lift one leg in front of you at horizontal and put your arms over your head, if you picture that position in the air and spinning, that's one that, again, there's a couple people that do it and it actually looks nice. But in general, to me, it just looks like a timer for something. I don't know. I don't like, <laughs> I don't like that one either. But again, when it's done well, it's really impressive. And I just really love gymnastics. So it's hard to really go more than those couple of things. What dance elements or things in choreography are a lot more difficult that the average viewer wouldn't realize how hard they are? The tumbling passes are obvious. I mean, yeah. if you're flipping yourself upside down three times and spinning in the air, we all know that's hard. But what else mm -hmm. is hard that you may not realize? All of it, really. I mean, just to do a split jump, jumping and splitting your legs and not get any deduction for it the way that these athletes that we see on TV do it so well. There's so much that goes into it from a judging standpoint, I can tell you for, for levels one through 10, which is what I judge just on a single split jump, they can get up to two tenths for how high it is in the air. And now that's a weird one, right? Because there's no uh, ruler, there's no measurement system. So that's a really tricky one when we're judging amplitude on anything, on saltos, on leaps, on jumps, because basically anything could always be higher unless you're Simone Biles where it's just like, wow, she's still rising. But anything could always be higher. So that's a tricky one. But but it is there. So when they do a split jump, they can get up to two tenths for how high it is. They can get up to a tenth for the posture that they show in the air. They can get a deduction for the lack of precision in the air, meaning are their arms in a clear position? Are their hips turned out or are they square enough? Then up to two tenths for how split they actually are. If they're just shy of 180, in the elite world, they essentially have to be beyond 180, which is crazy. And then we have up to three tenths for the legs being straight. We have a half tenth for the feet being pointed. And then we've got the landing of the skill. But, you know, are they closing their feet when they land and are they in control when they land? All of that on a jump. So that's why I'm saying everything because that's basically the, the root skill of most of those leaps that you're looking at. And so to know how much goes into that, and now we're going, okay, they're switching one leg and then returning it back to hit that split position. And then they're turning and spinning. And so it really is very, very difficult. All of those leaps and jumps that you're seeing difficult to do and difficult to do without getting deducted. And when you're building a program and you see a gymnast could do a really beautiful split leap, but doesn't quite have it yet and maybe is resistant to putting something in. How, how does that back and forth go? So I have to watch which hat I'm wearing. So as a choreographer, unless the coach requests, we do not comment on the skill selection. We essentially choreograph around the skills that they tell us that they're doing. Now, oftentimes they will because they know, well, for me, I'm a, I'm a clinician, so I speak on this stuff all the time. So it is pretty regular that a coach will say, hey, can you look at the two leap passes we're trying and, and let us know which one's going to be better? Or can you give her some tips on her leap pass or her turn or whatever? So if they ask, then I'll kind of switch hats into my coaching clinician hat and try to give them some tips. And if, if it's just not happening, I will try to help them be a little more creative in their skill selection. The problem on floor and beam is that they have to show some sort of split or straddle position in the air somehow, some way. So if we can at least get it to, to do it where they can get credit for it, that's the first barrier. Then how to do it without getting deduction. So if they try to do a split and it's just so far away from 180, they risk not getting credit for it at all. And then, like I said at the beginning, their start value drops down five tenths. So I do try my best to, to help them find some way to hit either a split or a straddle to at least get credit and then give them the tools to take back to the gym to improve it so it doesn't get deductions. I was going to ask, what is the surface of the floor like in that? How hard is it to spin on that? Because is it going to kind of like fabric-y? 
It is. And so you'll see, speaking of trends, there is a trend now because of the value of turns. There are a lot more athletes wearing socks, believe it or not, on floor, which freaks me out when I think of tumbling, but clearly they've got it under control. So that reduces that that friction. The floor is, it's either going to be carpet bonded foam. Now underneath is spring and plywood, but on top is either carpet bonded foam That's about, I don't know, what do you guys think? That's like three inches, four inches Mm -hmm. thick, something like that. And those are large pieces that are then Velcroed together with like a vinyl Velcro strip down the center. Or it's a rug, essentially. It's not very pilly, but it is definitely a rug. It it should be pretty taut, so it's not going to bunch up as they turn or anything. But it is very, very different than, you know, what we see dancers do when they're on a, a wood or marley surface. They don't spin as fast. And that's a big part of what I do in a lot of the speeches and coaches education when I talk about dance elements and turns is that the surface that we're on is very different. So I'm really glad that you asked that because it does change the game. A lot of people will try to directly take ballet technique and implement it into the dance elements on floor. And it's, it's a different surface. You just don't spin as fast. And so those techniques of whipping the head around and this and that, they're not necessarily going to work the same way as they do for somebody that's on a a floor and actually spinning. The balance beam is a lot more similar to that though. Is there ever a reason that you wouldn't work with a particular gymnast? No, I don't think so. (laughs) Is there? (laughs) It's never happened. I can't imagine why. How about a particular coach? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Okay, So let's talk a little bit about issues in gymnastics coaching when you're coming into a gym as as the choreographer? So, you know, sometimes we go to the gym and the coaches are very, very involved in the process and, and they're asking questions and they're taking notes and they don't need to do that because we provide a, a really thorough follow-up service to all of our routines. But it's wonderful when the coaches are, are there and involved because they're the ones that are with them every single day that are really going to help them grow with the routine. And then we go in sometimes and we never even meet the coach. It's the athlete and their parent is in the lobby and there's, you know, another class going on somewhere. So the interaction that we have with coaches is very, very minimal. But as gymnastics professionals, you know, we're mandatory reporters. So if we are in a gym and we see and or hear something that is questionable, that is I'm trying to use the right language here because I, I just took my, my test on this. If we see or hear something that's essentially detrimental to the athlete, any sort of bullying or emotional, physical abuse, anything like that, we are required to report. And it's a really important position to be in. And we're constantly being trained on what to look for, what's acceptable and what's not. So just being in that environment, if that were to happen, I would need to report it. And that's really probably where that relationship would end. I would hope that that coach would be removed and that the the athletes would be in a better situation because of it. Now, you know, this is we're all on the same team as far as wanting the best thing for the athletes. So, you know, we have to be really, really careful about what we're what are we noticing? What are we it's, you can tell this is a really tough thing to talk about, and and I've seen it before, and it's heartbreaking. So if there's a coach that I don't believe is is good for athletes, I don't want to be around that person. I would prefer that kids weren't either, but you know the reality is we we don't have as much power as sometimes we would like to. But that really that would be it. You know, there's a trend right now of really prioritizing athlete wellness. It should have been that way all along. But unfortunately, all the way, and I know it's still happening, but it's getting a lot better because we're talking about it. But many coaches were coaching in a fear-based system. Just those, the athletes were scared to mess up. And a lot of them got results that way. They got short-term results. But those human beings, when they were done with gymnastics, were not better for it and had a lot of things to unpack. And on my show, I've had many of those athletes on and they've talked about it and it's it's heartbreaking to hear as adults the things that they're still trying to face that happened to them when they were children. And for the fans, all we saw was the glory. 
and not realizing all those things that were happening in the background. So now those things are coming to light. There's a lot more education. There's a lot more awareness, discussion, and prioritizing of of doing it the right way. You can scare anybody younger and smaller. You can scare them because you're bigger and louder, and that's not a skill, and that's not something that is going to send them off into life ready to succeed. Okay, happier note. Let's talk about some of your favorites that you've seen, Beam and and Floor. So favorites from Tokyo or favorites you're seeing this season going into the World Championships? Right now, they're all so freaking awesome. But Shailise Jones is one who is, she's got such a unique style about her gymnastics, such an ease, her technical prowess, her exactness, just everything about her technically is so refined that it's she's like easy on the eyes. I don't know if that makes sense, but like it's calming to watch her, especially on bars. She's just got this beautiful swing and these lines and her coaches are crazy. And I mean this in a good way about technique. They do so many basics and and you can see it. And she is just an incredible worker. I interviewed her coach. So this is, you know, I don't know Shailise, but according to her coach is just her work ethic is incredible. So you put all that together and you get this gorgeous athlete and she's got really a really cool floor routine. She's powerful. She's got nice artistry. So her flexibility, I could go on and on. So watching her rise recently and really come into the spotlight um, even more so than she already had has been really cool and I she better be on that world's team who else there's a junior right now Levi Young Ravivavar who I actually interviewed this morning I would dare say is one of the most artistic gymnasts in the sport today and if I just called her a junior I lied because she is now a senior she just made her senior debut recently I really hope that we get to see her on one of those big, big stages because her artistry is like breathtaking. Is there a floor routine that when you're feeling bad, you just watch because you know (laughs) it's going to make you feel better? Funny enough, I would say not because I think it's the most artistic and beautiful, but I would go back and watch Shannon Miller from 92. More so for the sentimental aspect of it. I, I was a 12 year old then and watched I had a VHS tape of every single day of the Barcelona Olympics and watched it over and over I can recite verbatim the commentators and her floor routine in Barcelona any one of those days I I could tell you the score I could tell you why I could tell you the skills that are in it any nuances and it just reminds me of just really the first time that I really felt wow like look at what she's doing and I want to do that. I always knew I wanted to do it, but she, her on floor was just one of the most captivating things for me as a kid. And so that always kind of brings me back to a place of joy. Okay. We we know, I think I can answer this for Jill, but is there a piece of music that you could go the rest of your life and never hear in the gym again? There's so many. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many, but you know what? I I have a rule. I will not say out loud what style I don't like and what music I don't like because I judge and I don't want for if there's any reason that a parent of a kid that I judge or a kid hears this, I don't need that in their head because like I said at the beginning, it is not our job to impart our opinions on the scores. We have to recognize greatness when we see it. Um, we have to give credit where credit is due despite our personal feelings. So yes, there are a bunch, but I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Is there a piece of music you haven't gotten to use that you're like, please, somebody bring this to me? Like your dream routine, music and gymnast together. I think if there's like, there's an artist, David Garrett, who does like these, do you know who I'm talking about? Yes. He, yeah. So he does these arrangements. He's like orchestra I'm terrible with verbiage for music. And you would laugh because I am literally staring at a full drum set, a bunch of guitars. My husband's a musician. He's going to kill me. But I don't know. He does like orchestra versions or symphony versions or something of popular songs. Like he'll do Metallica or Guns N' Roses. And it's just gorgeous. So one of my former athletes, when she got her first floor routine, she was a beautiful, beautiful performer. I used a David Garrett Nirvana piece. And till this day, it's like, I, that's probably my favorite piece of floor music, but I would love for people to bring me more 
David Garrett pieces. As a judge, how long does it take you to develop the eye to be able to judge well? It's different for everyone because I've been in gymnastics since I was five years old. But like my my dad is French Canadian, right? So I heard French my whole life. So when I went to go learn it, it, it came really quickly. I just needed to refine some, but I had the ear for it because I had already heard it. And I think that is very similar to becoming a judge. I already had an eye for it. I was doing it. I was coaching it. As a coach, especially, you know what to look for because you're trying to make sure that the judges don't deduct. So all of that stuff has just been honed over a lifetime. So when it came to becoming a judge, I really just needed to learn the technicalities of it. I kind of already knew what to look for because I was looking for it as a coach. There are judges who were parents of gymnasts and then became judges. And so it's interesting when you take the judging exam, they must keep that question in mind that you had because depending on your experience, that will determine what level you get to test in at is what they call. So for me, because I went to level 10 nationals and I coached up to whatever level, I was able to enter the world of judging as a level nine rated judge. Whereas other people had to start at a level four or five because they were just entering and didn't really have a lot of that experience. So the judging people, they kind of know that you're going to understand this quicker. You're, you already know what you're looking at because of your experience. But again, if you don't have that and you can pass the test, then you start at that lower level, you stay there for a year, and then you can test up each year. And the idea is that with each year of judging, you develop your eye more and more. When somebody hires you for a routine, let's say just at the Olympic level, how much does that cost? Like, if we're, I'm the money person. I always want to know because well, we know that sport, sports are expensive. Let's just we know that. But but what are we talking about? What kind of range does this stuff cost? The three routines that I did for either people that were going to the Olympics or have been to the Olympics, I did for free. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's not the norm. Uh, mm -hmm. But these were people that I was very invested in, had a current relationship with. I didn't want them to go anywhere else. <laughs> but honestly, when it gets to be that level, it's it's almost not even worth it. It's it's really such a an honor and a joy. And you just to have your work out there on that stage is crazy. And to be able to work with the athletes is kind of payment in itself. So I don't know the going rate, to be honest. I kind of come in in weird ways in everything I do in my life. So I, I didn't come in in a traditional way and knock on their door and say, hey, I'm selling floor routines for $900. It was, it was, a, it was a relationship, a pre-existing relationship that developed into them asking me to do them the honor of choreographing the routines, and I did. You did Hori's Rio program? Yes. 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 Could you walk us through her program? Because we interviewed her as well. When you were putting together her program, what strengths did she have or was she bringing to Rio that you wanted to highlight? Well, first of all, she lied and told me that she's not a good dancer. And then <laughs> you guys have seen the routine, right? I mean, <laughs> she's great. I watched her past routines and just had this feeling. I had the same feeling with Alicia Sacramoni where they were great, but I'm like, there's something else in there. There's more artistry in there that's untapped, and I just want to pull it out. And so that was number one. I wanted to challenge her, and I wanted her to get outside of her comfort zone because I thought she would really shine. But the other thing is her story is so amazing, as you guys know. So listeners, go back and listen to the Hori Gabishian episode so you can hear her story. And I wanted that to be a part of it. I mean, that's really who she is, is that story. Not just that she went to the Olympics, but how she did it. And that's kind of how she approaches everything. And it didn't come easily and it didn't happen the first time out. And there's a whole section in the middle, especially where she's literally reenacting how close she got the first time she tried and then missed it. And she's on her knees and she reaches and then she reaches just a little further and then it's just out of her grasp and she she falls onto the ground and she rolls around and then she kind of is reborn again, right, for the for the next attempt. So that was that was the majority of that routine. It it was the story of her going against preconceived notions of what that Olympic journey looks like, taking matters into her own hands, failing 
And I hate to use that word because I don't think missing out in the Olympics is failing because of how far she did go, but failing at that, that particular goal and then doing it all over again. And that's, that's really the story of the routine. And when she competed it in Rio, that final section that she does after her last tumbling pass, I'm getting chills even talking about it. I tear up every single time. And then she goes and kisses the equipment and it's like, oh my gosh. But the, the smile on her face, you'll see she does this like jump spinny thing and she knows she did the routine that she could do. She did that routine at the Olympics and you can see her smile in the air and it's so freaking cool. Do judges know the story behind a routine like that or no? Do they just get a list of elements that? No, no, no they, they don't. Get, don't they, do they no. get anything? No, nope. That's so the D panel is that's their job is to watch and decide what they're seeing and then calculating what that is all worth. So, no, they don't know. You know, the good thing is that the most, oh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say all, all gymnasts are very smart. And once they're at that level, they know the code of points. Even gymnasts, I've had gymnasts that were level sevens and eights who could do this. If they made a mistake, they would know, oh, shoot, that's going to affect my start value. I got to do, and they'll, they'll do something else to cover for that in the moment. So there's no deduction for that. The judge can't deduct based on what they think you were trying to do. They just judge what they see. And so it's good that they don't, right? I mean, that's kind of the, that's part of the excitement of it. And then also it makes the judges really have to be on their toes because they can't assume anything. That's really interesting. Because now I want to talk to a figure skating judge because it seems like they know what's supposed to happen in these programs a little bit more. So back to the money, because I'm going <laughs> to get <laughs> so Have you learned that the two things that Jill loves talking about, surfaces and money? <laughs> And officiating, come on. <laughs> and money is a very surface thing. Yes. No, but like seriously, when, and, and a routine's good for two years, so you're putting the money over time. But if somebody's looking to hire you, what, what kind of budget range, say for more elite level, yeah. are they th should they think about saving up? So the way that we do our business is we actually don't charge just for the routine. And mm -hmm. we also don't just provide the routine. So that's why that's always a, how much time do you have answer to that question? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. it's not, you know, what I prided myself on when I started Precision and we still do now as a, as a whole is we don't show up, make up the routine on the spot and then pat them on the back and wish them good luck. And that's it. You know, we, we want that routine to shine. Partially, it's a reflection on us, right? So somebody goes out there and it doesn't look that great. And then, oh, well, Precision did it. Well, then that's not good, right? But more importantly, like I said at the beginning, we know how important this is to the athletes. So we don't want to be done with them at this, after the session. So we actually, first of all, we do the research beforehand. We create the routine specifically for that athlete. Then we do the session with them, which is two and a half hours long. We adjust if we need to. And then we provide them with a two-week training plan. During those two weeks, they can send in videos. They can get feedback, ask questions. We also give them video tutorials of us teaching the routine. They also get a video of the choreographer doing the whole routine, not with the skills, but just the choreography. So they have all this stuff that they get as kind of their toolkit that goes along with their routine. And then further down the line, when they start competing they can actually contact us and do a feedback session with a choreographer and go through and say, oh, you know, it's over Zoom. They can do it in person, but people do it over Zoom and go through and go, okay, that section is looking exactly how we intended it to. Let's take it to the next level. And we'll actually give them things to spruce up their routine. These are called touch-up sessions. So there's a lot involved. We stay connected with them the entire season and so and beyond. So with our rates, I mean, depending on the length of music, it's going to be anywhere in the low 300s to the high 600s. Which to me sounds reasonable for how much service you actually provide. I mean, Thank you. That's do, the goal. Do, do you ever look at a routine and go, wow, that looks like somebody's mom or dad put it together? Yeah, all the time. Okay. Because <laughs> I would imagine there's some people like, uh, that's a lot more money to pay. I can do this just as well, but I can imagine it does not look good. You know, it's like your taxes. Like, we all think we can do them, but it's probably better to have a professional do it. 
Thank you so much, Nicole, for joining us on this. Thank you for having me. I'll talk about gymnastics all day, as you can see. Thank you so much, Nicole. Nicole is the host of the podcast, What Makes You Think? And you can find her on Instagram at Nicole Langevin Consultant. She is also on Facebook. And we will have links to those in the show notes, along with a link to Precision Choreography's website and Corey's routine from Rio, which is absolutely delightful. I just love watching everything Corey did at Rio just because she just had a blast. She did so well. And when we were getting ready for the interview, I was just going to rewatch the floor routine. <laughs> now, once you start watching, though, I had to go back and watch the Gabishian on the bars, the bars. Her, her move. So that's she's a joy to watch. And speaking of watching gymnastics, Gymnastics World Championship starts this weekend, October 29th. And we're going to see a lot of interesting floor routines. That sound means it's time for our history moment. All year long, we are looking at Albertville 1992, as it is the 30th anniversary of those Olympics. Allison, it is your turn for a story. What do you have for me? And I can't believe we've gotten all the way to the end of October and we've never talked about the medals <laughs> because these medals are incredibly memorable. So the medals were created by Lalique Crystal, legendary French company, and they were composed primarily of glass. If you remember, the whole center is glass with a very thin ribbon of either gold, silver, or bronze at the top and bottom. And the glass was hand etched. Everything was done by hand in both the front and the back with the Olympic rings and the image of a snowy mountain. Whoa. Hours, hours to make over 300 medals like this. The design was created by Marie-Claude Lalique, who was the granddaughter of founder René Lalique. It was also Marie-Claude's last major design before her retirement in 1994. Huh. So this was a big deal. And the medals were big. They were 92 millimeters, about three and a half inches. And the medals in the 80s and 90s were generally between 60 and 70 millimeters. I wonder if this kind of helped usher in that big medal phase, because now the medals are much bigger. And you look at something like Montreal 76 and they're small and on. Is that the one that's on a chain or is Munich on a chain? Yes. Okay. So uh, yeah, I believe it's Montreal. And the Lalique ones are so memorable in that way as well. And there's a very famous picture that was, I believe, on the cover of Time. And it sort of emphasized the size of the medal because Christy Yamaguchi is holding her medal. And Christy Yamaguchi is a very tiny girl. So the medal looks bigger than her head. <laughs> I think it was really just the perspective of the picture. But whenever these medals come up, a lot of times that, that picture comes up. At the time, the reviews were mixed. A lot of people loved the fact that they included an alternative material and said it sort of looked like ice. And a lot of people didn't like that you couldn't see the gold, silver, and bronze as clearly. It was very hard to distinguish the colors, uh, especially on television. And this was the first time a medal included in an alternate material, but it was not the last. Huh. So Lillehammer, Nagano, Beijing 2008, and Sochi all continued that tradition of using other things besides the gold, silver, or bronze, even though I know it's not real gold that they're using, but just looking like the metal. And they use stone, lacquer, and polycarbonate, respectively, in their metals. So it was the first, but not the last, for people to wonder which one you won. French setting trends, as always. Hey, we would like to remind you that Book Club is coming up again, and we are reading Snowball's Chance by David Antonucci, and that is the story of the 1960 Winter Olympics in California. Pick up your copy at bookshop.org slash shop slash flame alive pod. We get a commission off of any purchases made through that link, and that goes to support the show. So we really appreciate all of you who shop through bookshop.org for us and let us know what you think of the book. I've just started it, and I'm very curious to know how Walt Disney has an effect on this. You're getting there. I'm about halfway through, and Walt has made an appearance. Excellent. Excellent. 
We've got a little update from Paris 2024. We actually don't have a Team Keep the Flame Alive update this week. All is well in Shuklistan, but I am going on a little vacation. So we are taping this show ahead of time. And really, like, one day has passed since we've taped <laughs> taped the previous show. So and, not a ton has happened. I, and I will mention, I'll put some results in the Facebook group, which is Keep the Flame Alive podcast group, as we're going along, and then we'll catch up. Yes, next week we will have more. So, Paris, big announcement about the Paralympics opening ceremony. So, the Olympics opening ceremony, the parade of athletes will take place on the Seine, and that's going to be magical, I I hope, but so different from anything else they've they've ever done in the Olympics. And the Paralympics said, yeah, we can't really do that because we have a lot of accessibility issues. So Paris 2024 said, don't worry, we'll come up with something. And they have. They are going to do another ceremony that is outside of a stadium. And it's going to be in the center of the city at the Place de la Concorde with the parade of athletes going down the Champs-Élysées. Can you imagine? This is going to be incredible. Yeah. I'm so pleased that they came up with something equally grand and equally as exciting and different for the Paralympics. Exactly. And there will be able to be 65,000 spectators. And then when they get to the Place de la Concorde, there will be four different stages that will have what they call an original configuration that will open up many creative possibilities. Sometimes they may be used one at a time. Maybe they'll be used simultaneously. Maybe they'll use a couple at once. But they're going to have a lot of different action going around. And there's going to there's a little video about it. We'll post a link to that in the show notes. The seating configuration was kind of all over the place. So athletes would walk down the Champs-Élysées. They kind of walk around the Place de la Concorde. But there might be different sections of seating with not everybody seeing the Place de la Concorde obelisk as their main focal point. So it's not like a theater in the round kind of thing. There's going to be different configurations going on. I can't even imagine this. I don't have the, well, obviously I've never been to Paris, but this is the same spot where the Tour de France ends. Mm. You know, that that Mm -hmm. ride down the Champs-Élysées and around the circle and through the... So I have a television picture in my mind, but that's very static, that race. You know, it's one road, everyone goes the same way cross the finish line, we're good. And the way that video presented it was people are just going to be popping out of places. Yeah. It's going to be just a surprise everywhere you look. And it also sounded like, I may be wrong about this because I thought I saw it somewhere that the ceremony may actually take place a little earlier. It wouldn't be a totally nighttime thing. It might be earlier around sunset. So you'd get some of the morning, some of the evening. Yeah, it's just the city of lights all pops up. It's got to be beautiful. And it actually makes sense for the Paralympics in many ways to have it earlier in the day, because at least for the Winter Paralympics, they do not have any events on the day of opening ceremony, unlike the Olympics. So having it finished earlier may allow some athletes to come who are competing that next day that wouldn't be able to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could very well be. One of the big selling points on this is also the fact that the whole event is going to be accessible to all, and there's going to be some free access as well. So you might be able to see parts of the opening ceremony, or my guess would be the Parade of Nations, would be where some free access is. But how could they not have big screens up and around showing some of this stuff somewhere in the heart of the city? And there are buildings near there. You know there are going to be people who camp out on the roof of the building. Oh, my God. Or just like the fireworks in New York City. People mm-hmm. just climb up into their roofs or go out on their patios. And if it's outside and open, I mean, they're not going to block it from people. That defeats the whole purpose. Right. So if you have an apartment along the Champs-Élysées and you would like to have a couple of guests for a few weeks, let us know. <laughs> We'd love to have that view. So I did wonder what LA 2028's reaction is to all of this because they have to, well, we can't have a whole parade of nations down the center of the street. They'd get stuck in traffic. But LA also still has the Coliseum. Yes. So they can kind of play that 84 card and 32 32. Yes, to say this is continuing. I hope Mm -hmm. they go that route. I hope they go the route of we are going to draw this line 3284. 28. That would be very cool. You know what else would be very cool? If they had one of those rocket men come back in. Oh, 
we'll have to we'll find a link. There's got to be a YouTube video of this where it was a guy in like who had a rocket jet propulsion pack kind of thing on his back and he just kind of flew in to the stadium. That would be great. Well, Paris has been perfecting the drone technology for the Olympics and Paralympics. Hmm. L.A., get on jetpacks. <laughs> All right. We would like to give a shout out to our Patreon patrons who help keep our flame alive. If you would like to become a patron, check out patreon.com slash flamealivepod. We are testing some new bonus features for patrons of all levels right now. So if you're curious as to what we're doing, we think it's pretty cool and hopefully they'll stick. So check it out, patreon.com slash flamealivepod. And that is going to do it for this week. Let us know your thoughts on gymnastics routines and wolf turns. You can reach us by email at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Our social handle is at Flame Alive Pod. And be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, uh, we are going to shift over to the winter sports season because everyone's getting back in action again. We will be talking with short track speed skater Ryan Shane. So we have learned so much about short track speed skating, and we are excited to share that with you. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive.